0: surprised if a lot of people wouldn't want to do it because a lot of people are not coming to church right now. They're just, the numbers are way, way down. I'm a little bit shocked. When we go to church on, we go to, we've always gone on Saturday evenings, the numbers are one-fifth of what they were. They're so low. I know a lot of people are nervous, so, and by the way, if any of you is really nervous about meeting physically in a classroom, let me know, please. Please do. Um, it may change some things, but it, but at this point, I want to talk with Tim to see what what he and Father are planning. Okay. I think that's it. Um, it's good to see you all again. I'm really glad to be doing Virgil. I I mean that genuinely. I, I haven't read him in three or four years since we did it at St. Francis, and um, um, he j- he just touches a. He touches a string in the heart in the way that other epic poets. Even Dante's a much greater poet, but um, remember, I mean, our next work will be the Consolation of um, Philosophy. This is the book. I'm gonna get this. It's the uh, it's the Penguin Classic, Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, Penguin Qu- Classic. Be sure you get this edition so we stay on the same page. It's a very short book it's one of the most important books in the Middle Ages it's it's a piece of philosophy it's a story Boethius is in jail he's awaiting his execution and Lady Philosophy comes to him and tells him to stop crying and um, what happens then is amazing we have to wait on it but we'll do that and then Dante Dante will be the center of our work together that's where we've been going and if you've not read him I think I've already said this so you should know for two thirds of Dante's Virgil, um, Dante's journey, Virgil is his guide. Virgil is his guide into hell. Virgil is his guide up purgatory. That's a Catholic notion. Virgil is his guide up purgatory, and Beatrice will be his guide up to heavens. So two thirds of Dante's journey is is accomplished with Virgil. That's how important he is.
1: I have a question.
0: I, yeah, go ahead.
1: What was that um, book again? Consolation of Philosophy. Right,
0: by Boethius. Oh,
1: can I see how you're spelling that?
0: Um, it's here. Let's see. I can't even. B O E.
1: Oh. B O
0: E T H I U S.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Um. It's a short book. It's um, it's it's so thought provoking. I I think it's going to knock you off your socks. <clears throat> it's so different from our modern world, but it is one of the most seminal works of the Middle Ages. He he synthesizes the very best thinking of Plato and Aristotle before we get to St Thomas. Um, St Thomas knew Boethius well, so very important. Doctor Bob. Yeah. Who
2: is the translator for
0: this one? Um. Okay, it's, I don't, but just get the Penguin Classic. Um,
1: two, two different translators.
0: Tran- it says here Victor Watts. Oh, okay, fine, thank
1: you.
0: Victor Watts, I think.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, Victor Watts. Thank you. No, I'm glad you asked. Thanks, thanks, Kay, for asking. Okay.
2: Um,
1: I have one question. Yeah. That's it. A- When we do Dante, is that like all one book or is it three books?
0: Yes, well, no, it's one, yeah, it's one book. Um, The edition we use is the, uh, God, hold on. Tina, thanks for asking. Um. The one we're using is called the portable Dante. It'll be important to get this one. There are lots of translations of Dante, and I think the Musa is really the best. Some are too stiff, some are too formal, um, Musa, Dante's language gets a little bit guttural sometimes. He's, he's writing, the, all, all epic poetry had been written in Greek and Latin. Dante makes a radical change by by writing it in modern or, you know, medieval Italian. Um, Musa's translation is really good. It's really good. That's is the one that we. M U S A. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: M U S A.
0: Right. Mark Musa. M U S A. It's the Portable Penguin. It's a, again, it's a Penguin. It's got the Inferno, the Purgatory, and the Paradiso in it, and at the end, it's got. Probably Dante's most important lyric poem, called uh, *La Vita Nuova*, the new life, It was a celebration of Beatrice, the woman, the woman in some sense that took him to Christ, um, and I'll, I'll allude to it when we get to Dante. But, but it, it, I'm, I'm glad you asked. It would for any of you who've read uh, Virgil and you want to get ahead, you can read Boethius or read Dante. They're both, they're both wonderful books. They're wonderful stories. Connie, they're the kind of stories you'd want to tell your grandchildren at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I think some grandchildren would be tickled to have somebody telling them a story about somebody going through hell. I mean that that would that would hold some children's interest. I think um, some scary things, scary things. Okay, okay, let's. Let's start. I'm. Um, I did once.
1: Everybody's talking
0: to you. Oh, I'm muting muting you guys again. Um, just for the sake of the sound, and please don't hesitate to um, unmute yourself anytime you have a question or comment. Okay. Um, let's start. <clears throat> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, you call us to yourself. Um, one of the great themes of Virgil is um, um, that our ends are always with us. Um, we search for them, and when we find them, we realize that they are our beginnings. Our beginnings and ends are the same. You are there always, at the beginning at the end. There is nothing else outside you. This creation is kept in being by you. Outside of it, there is nothing. It's you. You are our beginning and our end, the Alpha, the Omega. There's nowhere else to go. Um, Christ, you are always with us. You walk beside us. The whole purpose of this course is to... Be strengthened in our efforts to find you outside of church in our daily affairs. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, please. Um, To find a strength in you to do those things you ask of us. To love as you do. To accept a crucifixion, a cross. Um, Everything you did fulfilled a justice. You did not abrogate. Do away with justice. The great call was to fulfill a justice in love. Help us to be just. Help us to take being just seriously, to stand for justice, to work for it, but to bring to it um, a love we can't on our own, to bring you. Um, Help us to find a help in these works, um, the wisdom that these people give us to see things, and in some ways, more importantly, to feel them in our hearts. Um, Alan Tate used the term knowledge carried to the heart. Help us to receive all that you're giving, carry it to our hearts, make it living in all that we do, particularly with each other, those we love, um, and when it's hard. Um, I ask a special blessing on the work we're doing. Keep everybody safe from this virus. Hold it off, please. Keep it off. Um, Help everybody to stay safe. Um, Keep us together. Um, help us to be open to you in these works. Um, We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna read um, Tate's poem because it's so appropriate and then I'm gonna read a couple of poems by um, Emily Dickinson. Um, If if any of you don't know she was a um, 19th century um, American poet, very Protestant but she lived at a time when the Protestant world was in decline, virtually disappearing. The Protestant theology had crumbled. 19th century, um, Herman Melville, um, Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick. In, in at uh, Francis, um, we just started Melville's um, Billy Budd, uh, which is a wonderful story. Um, Maria, is that you? I think Hi, good to see you again It's good to see that lovely smile of yours Um, Hawthorne and Melville were were writing mid-century at a time when the Protestant theology was in collapse Um, The inhuman qualities of Calvin and some of the um, problematic things with Luther were, um, were, were having their effect. Um, so once people got past their enthusiasm about these new doctrines um, people began to slip away because they saw that there was something inhuman about it. Both Hawthorne and Melville are treating it explicitly. Um, Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick are both about um, a collapse. Something's happening in mid-America. And two ways of reading the world, Protestant, Christian, and scientific are, coming into conflict. And they're, they're two of the most important books ever written. And they're certainly two of the most important books for us as Americans because they are about us. Um, I hope we can get to them together here in this class. Emily Dickinson followed them. She was Protestant, but, or, or her sensibility was Protestant. It was formed by Protestant culture but she herself um, had trouble following the theology. Um, Very private person, a spinster, but she wrote some of the most powerful poetry of the time, some of the most powerful poetry ever written in America. And her themes varied. I mean, she just covers a whole wide range of things. Most of them have to do with this interior consciousness and the way that it responds to the world. She was very sensitive to nature that nature was speaking to us in some ways and she felt things about nature that made her aware that something's going on in nature that we don't see um... very important poet um, i'm going to read just a small group of poems that have to do with renunciations renouncing things giving up things deprivations because you know certainly from our class last week and if you've been reading virgil even outside the class You know that in Virgil's Aeneid, the the main character, Aeneas, um, is different from almost any other character we will ever meet in literature, because his whole quest involves um, losing a way of life. He was one of the survivors of the Trojan War. His whole way of life was crushed, destroyed. He has to pick up his life and go on. So, um, Aeneas is one of the most perfect examples of what I've been calling the uh, apophatic, between two worlds. Where is he? He's lost his home. The gods have called him onto a new place. Where is that place? You know, if you're a refugee coming from South America, Ecuador, Colombia, it doesn't matter. Europe, um, Afghanistan, Asia, Thailand, doesn't matter. If you're leaving away of life that has been a way of life for your whole family it's been a tradition and you have to leave it behind where I'm saying this really honestly you know you can go to America and think the land of freedom the land of hope the land of opportunity and you can get here and get crushed absolutely devastated by everything that's going on here but my my question is where are you how do we define that space where what you've known is no longer there, and where you're going, you don't know. This is the central theme of Boethius's consolation, beginnings and ends. God is always there. He will never not be there. You know. We're on a journey. Our beginning was with him. That's where we came from. Our home is with him. Do we feel that as we move through the world, that in-between space? Are we, are, do we feel like this is our home? And if things don't go right here, I'm going to shoot myself, you know, give up. When things don't go right, what do we do? Where, where are we? Are we too dependent on the world? Are we too given to it? Are we on our way to our home? You know, that's our journey. So the great theme of the Aeneid is this, what I'm calling this strange space, this between space that, you know, I've been talking about in terms of the um, Eucharist. But Emily, all of these poems that I'm reading tonight by Emily Dickinson have to do with loss or deprivation. Um, One of the greatest essays ever written on Emily Dickinson was by a poet himself, Richard Wilbur. He wrote a poem called Sumptuous Destitution. I'll repeat that again. Sumptuous Destitution that Emily Dickinson had this strong desire for something not quite there. She knew if we had everything we wanted you want a hamburger, you want a home, you want a car, you get all those things and you think you're going to be happy. And as soon as we get them we still want more. (laughs) Things won't answer. So there's a good number of her poems that have that have to do with this longing for something that seems to be there and her awareness that the value is, of it is not having it. Because once we have it and we think we're satisfied, we'll discover that we're not. Is that clear? So she took a pleasure aware that there was m- more to things than very often as our desires um, allowed for, okay? So I'll read these two poems because they're both relevant to our work because you know Aeneas has to give up everything. He's, the gods have called him to this task to found a new city. He keeps getting it wrong again and again and again. He keeps thinking, I'm here. I've got it. Now I'll be happy. And he finds out not so. Okay, So Alan Tate's Aeneas at Washington. I dropped it off so it's in your box. So you should have hard copy. And by the way, I put in some copies of um, maps of Virgil's wanderings that are a little bit clearer than the one that was in there. So there's a number of good things in the on, online in that on the file on Virgil that I, I think you'll find helpful. Okay. <coughs> Alan Tate's A at Washington. So this is Alan Tate, whom I love, I mean genuinely. This man was one, he's an American, American poet, I think he's probably one of the greatest literary critics of the 20th century. He's just an extraordinary extraordinary person and a poet. And he wrote this poem because he loved the Aeneid, looking back at Virgil, you know, who, what, two thousand years ago? Two thousand years ago. But he so loved Virgil that he identified with him in Washington. So the name of the poem is Aeneas at Washington. So that's our age. Our age. Hey, it's like he's... Here, let me ma- even try to make it more emphatic. We know from our reading that one of the things that marks Virgil, Virgil's um, Aeneid is he took the whole Homeric world, written 800 years before he before he was born, he took the whole Homeric world and carried it forward into his own time and transformed it. We've talked about that, right? The whole of the Iliad and the Aeneid is embedded in the Aeneid. The or the uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's there, carried forward eight hundred years. We've been talking about it. We'll talk about it again tonight when we get to the book. Tate is doing the same thing. He's taking Virgil and carrying him forward into himself. Okay. So the title of the poem is "Aeneas at Washington." Okay. I myself saw, furious with blood, Neoptolemus, who was Achilles' son, at his side the black Atridae, Hecuba and the hundred daughters Priam cut down, his filth drenching the holy fires. In that extremity I bore me well, a true gentleman. Tate was a southerner. You know how important the ideal of being a gentleman would have been to him. He would have been raised to be a gentleman. I bore me well, a true gentleman, valorous in arms, disinterested, honorable. Then fled, that was a time when civilization, run by the few, fell to the many. We became more and more of a democracy. Run by the few, fell to the many, and crashed to the shout of men the clang of arms. Cold victualizing. I seized, I hoisted up the old man my father upon my back, in the smoke made by sea for a new world saving little, a mind imperishable if time is, a love of past things tenuous as the hesitation of receding love. To the reduction of uncited literals we brought chiefly the vigor of prophecy, our hunger-breeding calculation and fixed triumphs. It's the way we set these goals for ourselves and think when I meet this goal, I'll be good. You know, I'll be happy, um, things will be okay in the world. We know from the Aeneid, I mean, insofar as we're in Virgil's world, that's not so, that's not so. I saw the thirsty dove in the glowing field of Troy, hemp ripening and tawny corn, the thickening bluegrass all, all lying rich forever in the green sun. I see all things apart, the towers that men contrive, I too contrived long, long ago. Now I demand little. The singular passion abides its object and consumes desire in the circling shadow of its appetite. Once we satisfy our appetites, then what? There was a time when the young eyes were slow, their flames steady beyond the firstling fire. I stood in the rain far from home at nightfall by the Ptolemaic, the great dome lit by the water. The city my blood had built I knew no more while the screech owl whistled his new delight consecutively dark. Stuck in the wet mire 4,000 leagues from the ninth buried city, I thought of Troy, what we had built her for. He's looking at Washington and remembering the ideals that governed us when we you know in our founding generation we set out to build this democracy and he's looking at washington and realizing um what it's become what we've lost as a people and he's recalling Virgil. um okay just a couple of poems by emily dickinson i'm not gonna i'm gonna try not to comment on them but but what you'll hear is this longing for something and um, the value it takes because we don't have it because it's something we want it's there okay? Um, or we lose it and um, we feel the loss we feel the value of something by losing it that somebody who gets it doesn't because very often getting things make us take them for granted i think we all know that so here's one Water is taught by thirst, land by the ocean's past, transport by throw, peace by its battles told, love by memorial mold, we memorialize those we lose, birds by the snow. We thirst at first, is nature's act, and later when we die, a little water supplicate of fingers going by. It intimates the finer want whose adequate supply is that great water in the West termed immortality, that great ocean of being, that metaphor of God. Who never wanted maddest joy remains to him unknown the banquet of abstemiousness to faces that of wine. Within its hope, though yet ungrasped, desires perfect goal, no nearer, lest the actual should disenthrall thy soul. The importance of these things grows because we don't have them. As soon as we get them, we take them for granted, granted, diminish them. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires source need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today those in the battle who won, who took the flag today, can tell the definition so clear of victory as he defeated, dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of trumpet burst agonized and clear. I think those are just... Delight becomes pictorial when viewed through pain, more fair because impossible that any gain the mountain at a given distance in amber lies. When we see a mountain at a distance, it's in a haze of beauty. The mountain at a given distance in amber lies. Approached, the amber flits a little, and that's the skies. So even though we lose the mountain, um, we get instead the skies. Those are just a few of her poems that have to do with this sense of the value of things by re- by acts of renunciation, by our willingness to give them up, to take a joy in what's yet. It, it to me it's interesting to think about those in view of everything that Christ says, because Christ says. Give it, give it. When the guy comes to him and says, "What do I do?" Christ says, "Give up everything and follow me." The guy gets sad. Um, over and over and over again, Christ is saying, "Give up everything and follow me." Um, the soul of great, the soul of great, the pearl of great price. Because when we do, we inherit a kingdom. We get something infinitely, infinitely greater. That's what's at the heart of her, so, so many of the poems that I just read of Dickinson. Would you do me a favor? Can you turn on the Are you warm? You here, you sure. Would you mind? Or the... or the, I'll turn this on. Down. Which do you
3: want?
0: Whichever you want. I don't know if you're warm or cold. Um, okay, let's start on Virgil. Okay, um... just a couple of things looking back quickly in review in the first two books um... Virgil tells us a story of the um... destruction of Troy you know that when we left the Iliad and the Odyssey, Troy was still standing It was still standing at the end of the Iliad there was a long um, lament to, that ended the Iliad because they were Um, grieving over the loss of Hector, but the poem ended on that note. It was uh, a, what's the word, um, um, it's an elegiac, it's an elegy, it's mourning the death of something. It was an elegiac um, spirit, mood, because we knew that um, Hector was dead, the city was going to go down, but we also knew that um, Achilles was in charge and the Troy would be destroyed and the war would come to an end. The war that had gone on for nine and a half years would finally end, but we don't see it. Um, When we pick up in the Odyssey, Odysseus is on his way home, and then he has to go through ten years of adventures before he can get home. But we don't see Troy destroyed. In the Aeneid, we do. So Virgil picks up with um, one of the Trojans named Aeneas. I'll come back to this. I'm going to quote a passage from the Iliad once we get started. What we learn from the Iliad—it's one of Homer's one of Homer's passages—was that Aeneas was of the line of Dardanus, Dardanus, that would never die out. Now that's crucial, because that's Virgil's way of showing that the city that Aeneas found, founds is eternal; it will not die. So the city that's to come into existence through his efforts. Will be unlike any other city ever created okay but at the beginning we have aeneas searching trying to get to this land that the gods have told him about you know the juno um throws him off course and he ends up in carthage and it's there that he um he tells the story to uh, um, dido that's where we were last week we saw that juno was the one who was angry um, who did everything he should to keep Aeneas from reaching his destination because she wanted Carthage to be the greatest city in the world. The gods have said otherwise. Um, We saw from Jupiter's prophecy that Rome was destined to become the greatest city in the world. Um, And I want to read a simile. We've not talked about the language, but I don't want to let it go. Um, On page, I think it's page 8 in our book, Yeah. Um, On page 8, remember that um, Aeolus, the god of winds, it's stripped the winds and and blown Aeneas off course. And Neptune comes to quiet the waves. He's outraged that anybody would do anything with the waters without his permission. And we get this simile. Now, you know that a simile is um, a way of um, identifying one thing with another. One thing is like another. So we can say, he got angry like a bear. So whenever we use the word like, it's a simile, right? It shows that there's something bear-like in this man when he gets angry, right? And, w- and we know that. There, I mean, you can say, she got angry like a harpy. We know that women are capable of getting vicious at times, so there's a harpy-like quality. Or we can say, he growled. That's metaphoric. So we don't use the word like but it has the same effect of a simile. Um, If you recall, I didn't spend a lot of time in this, but from your reading of Homer, you'll know, all the Homeric similes are in terms of nature. Whenever anybody did something, Homer would always liken it to something in nature. The fowls, the birds, um, um, a waterfall, a river, a tree. The, the, The relationship would always be, the reference point would always be to nature. That was Homer's reference point, that we were a part of nature, and whatever men did showed the affinities between man and nature, okay? that there's this likeness, we share in nature. Look at the difference here, because this is so telling. It says a lot about Virgil. This is book one about line 200 on our, on our book. It's page eight. He's describing Neptune trying to bring the water under control, and then we get this simile. When rioting breaks out in a great city and the rampaging rabble goes so far... boy, is this relevant to our world today? I mean, think about what's going on with all the protests today. When rioting breaks out in a great city and the rampaging rabble goes so far that stones fly and incendiary brands, for anger can supply that kind of weapon, if it so happens they took round and see some dedicated public man a veteran whose record gives him weight stature, they quiet down, willing to stop and listen. Then he prevails in speech over their fury by his authority and placates them. So the simile here is not in terms of something in nature, it's in terms of something civic, because that's Homer's reference. Virgil. Sorry, Virgil. Um that everything in Virgil's world has reference to this world that man can construct for a better life. So in one sense, he's looking forward to Rome. We should be hearing, when we think about this, not only Rome, because it's the center of, it will be the center of the world then, and the center of Christendom, but the New Jerusalem. Because the New Jerusalem, remember, we, the, the, for us, Life started in the garden. There was no city. It was the garden. But for a Christian, the movement is from a garden to a city in which all people will get along. So Virgil's frame of reference here is is not nature any longer. It's the city. It's that which man constructs to make it possible for people to live a better life. And here we've got an image of a rabble, a mob, and one man, one man, stepping forward with such a presence that he quiets the mob Okay. so there's a Virgilian, Virgilian simile um, those are just some of the things looking back to what we did I just want to quickly go over some of the major themes that we covered last week the theme of the city, you know that the whole thing is going towards Rome, that's what the whole um, Aeneas' quest is about but I want to take a minute if I can to try to put this in perspective because this is, this is huge um, Virgil lived roughly 50 years before Christ. 70 years, you know, half a century before Christ. His Eclogues speak about a young child that's going to come into the world that will bring peace to the world. And lots of the early church fathers saw that as a prophecy of Christ's coming. Um, Virgil knew his history really well. He knew Homer. He knew the, the the Greek historians who knew the Roman historians. So Virgil was in a position, this is crucial, Virgil was in a position to see that all the mythologies, you know, the pantheon of the Greek gods, Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, all the ones that we experienced in Homer's world, all the gods finally um, resulted in a confusion. Um, whatever their power was, their power was not great enough to help man do something that he seemed to want to do. I can put it that way. The philosophers came into existence around 5th century, so it's several centuries after Homer writes his works or sings his songs. All the pre-Socratic philosophers, then finally Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. If you know anything about the philosophers that time, you know that finally Socrates is going to be executed. So that as important as philosophy was, it was not enough. So the mythologies helped man become better. We saw that from Homer, the mythologies, the Homeric world. The philosophers um, grounded us in truth. So we've got the the philosophic tradition beginning in Greece and spreading. It'll finally get to Rome when Rome comes into existence. But Virgil knew all that. He knew all that. And moreover, um, he's, he's writing a book about the coming into existence. This is really crucial to what we're doing. He's writing a book about the coming into existence of Rome. That this city is going to be founded that will be able to do something no other city in the world had ever been able to do. Not Babylon, not Egypt, not any city in China. He knew enough about the world. What he knew finally at the end of that is this, that whatever, however great man's accomplishments were, however important the city was, man was not enough. That there was still something lacking what we're going to find when we get to the end of the Aeneid is instead of Aeneas, instead of being presented with a scene in which the Trojans are laying the foundations of a city bricks, mortar, you know, cutting trim burn, the, the Aeneid will end with Aeneas killing Turnus. That's the last act. Aeneid is going to end with a killing. So we're going to be reminded of Achilles at the very end of the book, um, Aeneas was no romantic. He was not a black-white-minded kind of man. He knew that, however great Rome was, that Rome was pointing to something more. Okay. Um, if any, if any of you, if any of you, seen the movie Gladiator? Have you seen the movie? I love that movie. If you remember, after the gladiator dies, like what was his name, Marcus? I can't even remember. Not Marcus Aurelius, but... That's the
1: emperor. Hmm? That's the emperor.
0: I know that. I can't remember his name. But anyway, you remember the black guy who was the gladiator that was so close to the gladiator that... If you remember the last scene, he's bearing the little idol that the gladiator um, worshipped. He would... Robert Maximus. Maximus? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, he took the little idol that Maximus prayed to. It was his image of his God. And he's burying it. And he says, I will see you again. I will see you again. But not yet. Not yet. I thought whoever did that film was a good reader of Virgil. Because in some sense, what this story is about is Rome, but not Rome in terms of brick and mortar. It's Rome because it embodies something not yet. We're back in that in-between time, that apophatic time, where even though Rome is there physically, what it embodies in itself is a belief that however great this is, there's still something more. When Christ comes into the world, he makes clear what that is. Okay? Rome is pointing towards him. So this notion of the city is right at the heart of everything Virgil's doing, okay? But it's not the city the way we would understand it. Sorry, go ahead. Oops. Sorry. Um, we've seen already that the, that the Aeneid is based on Homer's world, that the first six books of the Aeneid embody the Odyssey, Odysseus's journeys, his voyaging, his wanderings. The last six books of the Aeneid um, um, carry forward the Iliad. So all of the Homeric world is embedded in Virgil's. And one of the things that, that I suggested last week is that what he does by doing that is teach us how important reading is, that we don't read very well. Because remember, if anybody were to have read the Virgil's Aeneid without having read the Il- the Iliad or the Odyssey, they wouldn't see. They wouldn't have a clue. If they read about, if they read the fourth book in in the Aeneid dealing with um, Virgil's, I mean Aeneas's affair with Dido, they would have no clue how that changed what happens between Odysseus and Circe and Calypso. Um, I mean, they would miss a million things. Because what we learn in reading Virgil is the whole of the Homeric world is carried forward. It's there. So what we're doing is reading several levels of meaning so that we realize that what's going on on the surface carries within it things that are invisible on that surface. So we've got a visible surface carrying invisible things within us. We call that the apophatic. There's a whole philosophic tradition. It's the negative way of getting to God. Is that clear? I mean, I mentioned that last week, and some of you looked a little bit puzzled. Is that, if, if you've got a question about it, please ask, because it's, it's crucial to see. We can't read Virgil without seeing that he's... Let me just give another concrete example. When, when um, Aeneas is describing the fall of Troy, you know, he, he describes meeting this Greek who is tied up, this man named Sinon, who tells him this lie about the Trojan horse, on the basis of that lie, they take the Trojan horse into the city, and the city's destroyed. Every description of, of, of um, Odysseus, is a, he's a man of greed. He watches over the gold. He's guarding the gold. He's a man of cunning. He's a man of treachery. If you watch Achilles, um, he's doing everything he does for gold. So Virgil's taking everything from that Homer, Homeric world and changing it. If you've not read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you won't be aware of the changes at all. So there's a tension. We're carrying the Homeric world, everything great about Achilles and Odysseus into this world. We're watching a new kind of hero emerge. He has all the qualities of Achilles and Odysseus, but he brings to them something that corrects both of their faults. You wouldn't see that if you had not read Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, okay? So... One of the great themes of the Aeneid is this theme of what I'm calling um, um, transforming or translating. He's He's taking the past with him and redeeming it, changing it, transforming it as he goes. And by doing that, he made it clear what the epic poet, every great storyteller would have to do. Faulkner does it, Melville does it. You have to you have to take the past. We, we don't live in isolation. We don't exist in a vacuum. All of us carries the past within us. The question is, what do we do with the past? Do we let it overwhelm us? Do we let it crush us? Even with defeat, because remember, Aeneas comes out of defeat. What do we do with the past? How do we carry it forward? What do we do to change it? It's one of the greatest themes that Virgil gave us. It's It changed Western civilization. It's at the heart of everything... That, It's at the heart of everything we believe in in the West. Um, One of the things we saw in Aeneas' retelling of the story is that that Troy did not fall from heroic acts on the part of Achilles or Odysseus. It was destroyed um, by deception and cunning and blasphemy. Odysseus told lies. Sinon told lies. They used the gods. They used the gods so that Um, Everything that Troy represents is fouled. There was something wrong with Troy. Whatever it is Rome is going to be, it cannot be those things. Troy was too susceptible to religious superstition. The Trojans gave in. They allowed these blasphemies and these deceptions to destroy their city. Is that clear? They were too given to deceptions. They let this happen. Um, Sin and trick them. Um, They're too superstitious. So the the Rome that's going to come into existence is going to have to learn from these things to bring a different kind of city into being. Um, Just quickly two other um, changes before um, we go to the book again. We didn't didn't get to either one of them but I'll mention them here. Two of the important changes that take place from the Homeric world to the Virgilian world is that um, Aeneas' year with, with Dido is a year with an actual woman. Um, Carthage is a real place. What he does with her is going to have consequences for Rome several hundred years... 1,000 years later. I hope that was clear. What happens in the affair between Dido and Aeneas is going to have consequences that are going to be played out 900 to 1,000 years later in the Punic Wars, in the wars between Carthage and, and uh, Rome. If you know anything about your history, you know that Carthage almost destroyed Rome. Almost destroyed. Um, and what Virgil's showing is those Punic Wars had their origins, their genesis in this affair. So um, in the Odyssey... Odysseus has these two experiences: with one with Calypso and one with Circe. But they're archetypes; they belong to an ideal world. I hope that's clear. They're not real; they're nymphs. They belong to an. I- Homer's looking at archetypes. Virgil, as a Roman, is looking at real time. So, in the shift from the Homeric world to the Virgilian world, we've moved from an idealized world into real history. Let me give a better example to make this clear. If you look at the Greek statues of a soldier like David, you'll see a very smooth, idealistic, perfect in motion. It's absolutely perfect. It's a per, it's it's an image of perfection idealized. That's the Greek representation in art. It's an abstraction. If you look at the Roman images of art, they show age, faces that are withered, even of an athlete, you're going to see faults and flaws and age. Because the, the Romans realized that the Greeks too idealized things. That they didn't live in time. So that in the shift from Homer's world to Virgil's, in a sense we're, we're moving from an idealized world, with, particularly with Achilles and the Disset, into a world of real time in which everything tends to decay and loss. So much of what happens will involve suffering loss again and again and again and again. Um, so what happens between Dido and Aeneas um, is going to have um, long-range um, consequences. And the, just as another example, the funeral that takes place in the first half of the Aeneid is the funeral for um, Aeneas's father, Anchises, who's going to lose his father. If you remember the Homeric world, the funeral was for Patroclus. In the Iliad, Patroclus died. There was the funeral games. So think about the change of that. Um, Everybody celebrated Patroclus' life. He was a friend of Achilles. They honored him. Um, Aeneas is going to lose his father. That's a much deeper relationship. That's the past. His father represents traditions, a way of being, the the man who gave him birth. So the funeral games in Book 5... are in honor of Enchises. It's a much, much different world. So, in all of these things, we're, Virgil's taking the past, just as Homer presented it, but he's tr- translating it into a new language. He's transforming it. And in the process, and he's doing that because something new is coming into the world. It's a new kind of hero. Um, and so, one of the questions we've got to ask ourselves is: How is Aeneas different from Achilles and Odysseus? What, what does what does Virgil? How does Virgil see man? What is the greatest kind of being that a human being can be? Homer had one image of it in Achilles and another in Odysseus. Now we're going to get another in Virgil in a very different, a very different world in a Roman world. So that's just um, a quick look back um let me stop before we before we turn to the books and start looking at um, at books three four and five any any questions you guys about the wonderful i I don't know that you all appreciate it um, I, I hope you have some sense of it but just the fact that you have any awareness of Homer's world you know that you've 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 learned about the Iliad and the Odyssey, you've done some reading in it, and that you're going on to read Virgil right now, you've got behind you the foundations of Western civilization that most people don't have today. If you looked at what's going on in the riots today, you'd you'd have to see. What's happening is one indication, one indication of how much we've lost sense of our past. We've We've just lost touch with the things that make um, America what it's always been. Any questions? Anything, you guys?
3: Uh, Bob? Uh, yeah. I just wanted to, as I've been reading the Aeneid, uh, this has, it, 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 I guess I, I naturally I judge the uh, Works of literature by modern uh, uh, by modern standards, and I, I can right. And you just mentioned several examples of where Virgil uh, created events in the Aeneid that were uh, very similar to events in Homer, like uh, uh, Aeneas's uh, descent into the underworld with uh, Sybil. Right. And, uh, the Sibyl, and the the funeral games after after the funeral of uh, uh and uh, the, later on when this, this the armor is made by yeah, the good God, for you the
0: Vulcan. good for you yeah
3: if if someone wrote a work like that today and it would, it would have so many similarities to another work that most everyone had read they they they'd cry uh, plagiarist <laughs> it's true you know, it's true. It's true. Is it, are we judging by modern standards? Is, is, why? Uh, why? Why is this? Why did Virgil do it that way?
0: Wait. Let me. Let me try to. Uh, such a good question, Mike. Um, wait. I want to. I want to make a distinction here, because teaching in academia plagiarism is a big deal. You know, when you get a student who's taking verbatim. <coughs> A, um, a, a paper or a passage from another paper. He's plagiarizing. You don't want to let that happen because the the student's not learning to think on his own or take responsibility for himself. He's he's really using somebody else and claiming something for himself when it's it's like stealing, really. So plagiarism literally means taking literally what somebody does and just duplicating it. Um, what Virgil's doing is not plagiarizing. What he's doing is taking the past and building on it. It's a little bit like a son. Let me, if I can try to make it more personal. It's a little bit like a son taking something he inherited from his father, not in his business, but in a way of doing things and carrying it forward, you know, and bringing something of himself. So we wouldn't call that plagiarism, but interesting, I mean, I'm, to go to your point, Americans, I think, have this notion that if we don't produce something that's totally original... It's no good. When what tradition shows us is there is no such thing as anything totally original. There's a God, we've got a nature, you know, we create. What makes a work original is something that that's distinct to that person. So if you read Faulkner, for example, or Melville or Shakespeare or Dante or you know whoever you go, you find that you're you're reading the works of somebody and even if even if those writers are dealing with um, Um, what they call twice-told tales. They're tales that have already been told, but they're retelling them. All of Shakespeare's plays are twice-told tales. All of them. Every one of them has already been told. But what he does with them radically changes them. So none of those artists are plagiarizing. What they're showing is their maturity, because by, by carrying the past forward, they're able to bring a depth of vision to what they do that they wouldn't have if they didn't know those people. You know if they disown them. so people who proudly like to claim I'm doing something original probably create some of the most shallow works that artists could create. I mean, they, they just don't have much depth to them. So there's a depth there's a difference between an artist who uses the past but brings to it something original to himself and somebody who's just copying the past. you know, and so I don't think plagiarism is the word we'd use. It's Virgil, I mean, I'm being really... I'm not trying to be sentimental. Virgil loves the past. He just deeply... He, my my words to express what he's doing is gratitude. He, he could not have done what he did without Homer. And yet he's very critical of Homer. I mean, he shows that there's some serious faults in the way the Greeks looked at things. But he could not have done anything he did without them. So he's got this wonderful love, but it, it to me it's a little bit like Christ saying here if I can. It's a little bit like Christ saying, get behind me, Peter. He loved Peter. Absolutely loved him. But there was no way he was not going to say to him at that moment, stop. What you're doing is wrong. You know. So Virgil had that kind of he, he had such a depth of feeling for what he was doing. He loved the past. He loved Rome. But he also saw the point that I tried to make earlier. He He lived at a time when he saw Rome, he saw Rome go go through the Punic Wars. He watched Rome becoming corrupt. He loved this city. It's going to be the Pax Romana, where the the gates of of war are going to be closed. But he was no die in the wool romantic. You know, he saw things honestly that he knew that as, as great as Rome was, something was lacking. So he had this great love. But he was also aware that there was something more, and that's, I think, that's what he does as a poet. He takes us to that place that I'm calling something more. That's, you know, so hard to get at. Um, let me quickly just, I just to pick up what Mike is doing. Um, I want to, um, I want to go through this quickly just for you to carry this forward yourself. These are some of the things, just for as examples of some of the things that Virgil is doing that Homer did not do. Okay? That radically changed. He's still, he's still treating with same, wait, same war, right? It's, it's Troy. Troy's being destroyed. But we're watching the destruction of, we never saw that in Homer. So we're getting a very, we're getting we're getting the story from the perspective of those who were defeated. Who were crushed. We're getting that story now from their point of view. okay. Page 43. I'm just going to quickly go through things before we get to the um, books we're we're doing for tonight. On On 43, when Troy's being destroyed, the Greeks have emptied out of the horse, and they've opened the gates, and the Greeks are flooding in finally. After nine and a half years, the Greeks are inside the walls. And we're getting now the ravages Um, and we know there's a lot that's not being described the women will be raped they will be taken the men will be killed taken into slavery while the fight is going on in page 43 Aeneas is in the midst of the cities in battle and suddenly Hector appears to him now this is the man in the Aeneid that to me is a shame because when he fights Achilles he's more concerned about what other people think about him than fighting But here, this is the greatest of Trojans, and his ghost appears to Aeneas while the city's under siege. So, on page 43. Hector appeared to me, gaunt with sorrow, streaming tears all torn, as by the violent car on his death day, and black with bloody dust, his puffed-out feet cut by the rawhide thongs. Ah, God, the look of him! A change from that proud Hector who returned to Troy wearing Achilles' armor, or that one who pitched the torches on Danan ships, his beard all filth, his hair matted with blood, showing the wounds the many wounds received outside his father's city walls. I seem myself to weep and call upon the man in grieving speech brought from the depth of me. Light of Dan- Dardania, best of Troy, what kept you from us so long and where? From what far place, O Hector, have you come? He makes us appeal. Why these wounds? Where have you been? He wasted no reply on my poor questions, but heaved a great sigh from his chest and said, I, give up and go, child of the goddess. Save yourself out of these flames. The enemy holds the city walls. And from her height, Troy falls in ruin. Fatherland and Priam have their due. If by one hand our towers could be defended, by this hand my own, they would have been. There was nothing Croy could have done. They didn't have whatever it needed. Of hearth and household, Troy commends to you, accept them as companions of your, of your days. Go find for them the great walls that one day you'll dedicate when you have roamed the sea. So it's a half prophecy. What he's saying is keep the gods with you on your journey. One day they will have a home. Um, I've already read this, but just to re- you know remind you on page 54 when Aeneas is about ready to kill Helen after Pyrus Achilles' son kills Priam we watched Priam and Hecuba die um, Venus comes to him on page 54 he's about ready to kill Helen because she caused the she was she and Paris were the ones mostly responsible for the war. She comes to him, page 54, never before so clear in a pure light, stepping before me, radiant through the night. My loving mother came, immortal, tall, and lovely as the lords of heaven know her, catching me by the hand. She told me, she held me back, then where the rose-red mouth reproved me. She says, why are you here? Where's your home? You've got a wife and a child and a father. She's speaking as a mother. Give me a scene in Homer like that. You won't find it. I mean, this is a love so much deeper. And she's reproaching him. Um, Page 54. um, She removes the veil from his eyes, and he sees the gods destroying the city. Bottom of page 54. I'll tear away the cloud that curtains you and films your mortal sight, the fog around you. Have no fear of doing your mother's will or balk at obeying her. Look where you see high masonry thrown down, stowed toward from stone. With billowing smoke and dust, Neptune is shaking from their beds the walls that his great trident pried up, undermining, toppling the whole city down. And look, Juno in all her savagery holds the sky and gates and raging in steel armor calls her allied army from the ships. On the citadel, turn, look, palace. she's there with the powers of Gorgon. It's interesting because we believe that God gives permission for evil. And that's a fundamental tenet of our belief. God allows evil to happen, not because he approves of evil, but because he wants us to learn to take greater care of the decisions we make and because he's trying to protect our free will, even when we do stupid things. And here we get a picture of the gods at work, tearing the city down. So they're, they're active in bringing the city down. They have a part in it. Creusa, remember, um, I'm not going to go through the taking of the auspices. Remember when um, Aeneas comes home, he tries to persuade Anchises to come, and Anchises won't do it. There's this flame around Julius' head, and they have to take the auspices. They make a prayer to the gods, and the gods answer, so Anchises knows it's time for him to go. You all remember what a taking of the auspices is. An omen is given, some omen, some strange sign, but people have to be careful because they may be misreading so they have to look for a confirmation. It's a taking of the auspices. They If the confirmation comes, they know they've read it right. The church does this all the time, the Catholic church. Miracles happen all the time. They, they require a confirmation. Because they know otherwise they'll be susceptible to believe everybody. And everybody will have religious stories to tell about everything. So... The taking of the auspices, uh, the one that I want to end with, remember when Odysseus or Aeneas leaves the city, he's got his child in his hand, his father in his back, Crous is following him. When they finally get out of the city, he turns around and discovers creusa is gone. He runs back into the city in terror, absolute terror. So he puts himself in harm's way again. There are enemy soldiers all around him. He's screaming for his wife, and suddenly she appears to him as a ghost. This is on page... Um, um, I pressed on to see Priam's Hall and Tower in the bare colonnades of Juno's shrine. Two chosen guards, Phoenix and hard Ulysses, kept watch over the plunder. That's as good as it's going to get for Ulysses. <laughs> this is the great hero of the Odyssey. In the Aeneid, he's just guarding plunder. All he cares about is loot. Um, Drawn up around the boys and frightened mothers stood in line. I even dare to call out in the night. Creamed, screams for her. Then to my vision her sad wraith appeared. Creusa's ghost larger than life before me. Chilled to the marrow. I could feel the hair on my head rise. The voice clot in my throat. But she spoke out to ease me of my fear. What's to be gained by giving way to grief so mad, so madly my sweet husband? Nothing here has come to pass except as heaven willed. It's God's will. He let it be. I mean, it's Christ at the cross, yeah? And he's going to be crucified. Um, You may not take Creusa with you now, it was not so ordained, nor does the Lord of High Olympus give you leave. For you long exile waits and long sea miles to plow. You shall make landfall at his spirit. This is this strange place that he has yet to learn. He doesn't understand it and will not for a long time. And she says, um, A kingdom and a queen for you. Dismiss these tears for your beloved Carissa. I shall not see the proud homelands of Urban. She gives him up to another woman. She knows he will marry. These marriages are not small. And I, I don't want to give this away. He's, he's going to have... Just think about this. Carissa is from Asia, where Troy is. Dido is from Africa. And um, Lavinia, the woman he will marry, will be from Europe. So Aeneas will bring to this city, this strange city called Rome, a universal quality that will represent three different continents, three different relationships. So the, these his relationship to and and notice. Well, we have to talk about this later, what those relationships mean. Here she's giving him up, and she says farewell. So know the great mother of the gods detains me here in these shores. She says, "I cannot go. Farewell now, cherish still your son in mine. With this, she left me weeping. Find anything like that in the Odyssey or the Iliad. I can find it. And yeah, yet, sir, sorry, sorry, go ahead, young.
2: It's melody. So, um i found it odd that that i mean is uh what's her name his mother aeneas's mother venus it talked about uh, the lords of heaven know her and so is she in heaven because you didn't see that in the other books Be, all the the dead souls went to hades so do they believe in a heaven or i just don't understand how these People who have died can come
0: back and talk to him. Yeah, hold on. Remember, Patroclus came back to Achilles. Oh, that's
2: right. And let me
0: let me just hold on. Let me and Odysseus goes to the land of the dead. Wait a minute. I want to get clear because I'm I'm not sure if I understood your question. Oh. The heavens, the heavens don't change. There are. By the way, just, just think. We we believe in three realms: heaven, purgatory. Well, actually, heaven, earth, and Hell, final ends. I mean, or or earth looking to two ends, heaven and hell. The Greek world was divided into three. It had the heavens, the Olympian gods, the earth, and the underworld. When people, when humans died, they went to the underworld. But we already know that they could come back. I mean, Patroclus' ghost visited him. And we remember that um, when Odysseus goes to the underworld, he meets with Elpinor, the man who fell off Circe's roof and was not buried. And he's asking Odysseus to bury him. We're gonna get a parallel to that here. But human beings, all of whom die, uh, human beings die and they go to the underworld. What's gonna be interesting in Virgil is is that Virgil's going to um, differentiate hell, the the underworld, more than Homer does. There's gonna be um, more areas so there's gonna be a finer differentiation between realms, as a way of showing, reflecting that that what men do in this world will carry through in the next world. So that people who are more virtuous would go to the land of the blessed, the Ephesian um, world, or not the Ephesian fields is what it was called. But all of the gods are the same, they just have different names. Juno is... Aeneas's mother... Um, remember, most of the heroes mm-hmm. in the Homeric world were um, derived from the gods. Achilles had a divine birth. So many of them... No, wasn't his mother. So many... So man, so man, if you could talk... Just ask, wait, wait, and ask, and I'll answer it. Um, hold on, i got to get... Um, Aeneas is descended from Venus. Achilles had a divine birth. So many of the, hom- the Homeric heroes... Were tied to the gods. That's why they were heroic. That's still true in Virgil's world. Um, Venus is the equivalent of Aphrodite. Jupiter is the equivalent of Zeus. Juno is the equivalent of Hera. So they all line up. The gods are the same. What, what's really important to see is even though they line up, they're subtly changed. So Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love. Venus is the goddess of love, but you can't put those two figures together without seeing immediately Aphrodite is far more associated with erotic desire. Venus is much closer to something like Christ. There is a tenderness, something self-giving in the Iliad, um, Aphrodite was whining, you know and you know the gods Ares whined and there's a different sensibility to the to the um, Roman gods because a subtle um, cultural change has taken place. So the gods line up, but the sensibility, the spirit they bring represents a change in the Roman people. Something has changed from that Greek world to the Roman. There's a far greater love for the common person, for the common good. There's a much greater willingness to sacrifice oneself for something I mean these are qualities we're going to see in Rome that we didn't see in the Greek world. Sorry what what did you I said Juno was Venus's mother.
2: It's not Juno. Oh. It's Venus. Right. And that's what I forgot. I forgot that she was a goddess. So
0: Who, Venus. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't. I'm glad. No, no, I'm glad you're because I'm I'm sure that you know this is helping everybody get something, so don't, don't, I'm glad for your questions, you guys, as far as I'm concerned, you don't ask enough, I'm glad for your questions, it helps everybody, it helps everybody, the questions you're asking are oftentimes the questions lots of people have, so, okay, you, um, let's turn, anybody, any other questions before we look at the book, do me a favor, if you have something, catch my attention, or something, so I can, um, I've got to do this quickly because there's. Um, you know that at this point, Aeneas sits down with Dido in her court and tells the story of his wandering. By the way, the last thing, for those of you who were not here last week, the one last thing I think it's important to remember about this moment is you remember when Aeneas came on shore to Carthage. Um, He was enveloped in a cloud. Um, Venus was protecting him. She uncovers him when it's safe, and he's in front of um, Juno's temple. Um, Dido has um, built this temple in honor of Juno. That's her goddess. Remember, Juno's the one who's causing so many problems with Aeneas because she wants Carthage to be this great city, and um, it's not destined to be that way. Aeneas is looking at the, at the temple, and on and all the paddles are the various episodes that make up the Trojan War. It's what Homer wrote in the Iliad. So he's, he's looking at a story of the Trojan War as it unfolds in the temple. And the point that I wanted to stress last week is this man has been attempting to found cities for seven years. And he's failed again and again and again. He's a defeated survivor. He's a refugee, like refugees coming to our shores. Not not the bad guys, I mean not the criminal. He's his life has been destroyed. He's a good man. He's coming he's coming ashore. He's a fugitive. And he's failed for seven years. In everything he's tried to do. He's failed. He's looking at these images of himself as this great hero. And I just didn't want anybody to lose the irony of that moment because imagine any of us, I think most of us have probably had these experiences, as as we get a little bit older and we look back at our pictures of ourselves when we were 20 and 25 or, I don't know about you guys but I'm often embarrassed and sometimes ashamed, you know we look back and you know we we looked at ourselves a certain way when we were 20 or 25 and um, by the time we get to our age um, I think we look back and see a very different person. I think something of that is going on with Aeneas. He's looking at, at this heroic action. He's a central figure in the, in the heroic deeds being done, but he's standing in front of them as a failure. Um, and his failures are going to get worse because even though he's, he, the gods told him to go build the city, he stops and he has this affair with Dido for a year so this is a man who for a year gives up his calling he's turned away from what the gods have asked so in whatever way he carries a failure with him as he looks on the panels it's going to deepen from this moment on for a whole year okay. and it tells the stories I'm not going to go through them all but taint, I'm going to just pick out a couple just to focus on them turn to page 67 He's telling Dido of all the cities he attempted to found. When he sets off from Troy, the very first one is um, the Aeneidae, not far offshore. Um, They land, the first thing they do is what a good people should do they try to erect an altar to give praise to the gods. I stepped over trying to tear away green stuff out of the mound. This is on page 66. It's it's book 3, about line 40. To make a roof of boughs and leaves over the altar, there I had sight of a gruesome prodigy. As he pulls up these branches, blood comes up and he hears a voice. It's one of the most famous scenes in all of Virgil. We're going to get it repeated in Dante shuddering took me my heart's blood ran slow and chill with fear once more I went forward and fought to pull up another stubborn shoot to find what cause lay hid there and again dark crimson blood a groan go down a few lines a groan came from the mound a sobbing muffled in the depth of earth and words were carried forward must you rend me derelict that I am Aeneas spare me now he gets the story he's a Trojan who was sent by Priam when Priam believed that Troy was in danger and he wanted to save his gold. Ah, put the savage land behind you. Leave this shore of greed, for I am Polydorus, an iron hedge of spears covered my body. Go down a few lines. This man, this Polydorus, ill-starred Priam, had sent some years before in secret with great weight of gold to be maintained by the Thracian king. That was a time when Priam's trust in Dardan arms had faltered, as he saw Ilium ringed in siege. The Thracian, after the shattering of Trojan power, after fortune had left us, threw in his lot with Agamemnon cause and winning arms, broke every pact and oath, killed Polydorus, and took the gold by force, another act of treachery. So here's a land that's tainted, and it's tainted by political betrayals. So once again, we're seeing the causes underneath cities, the betrayals, the greed, People wanting gold possessions. So he has to pick up. Um, he goes to Perganon, um, page 70. For the first time they settle, since they left, they actually start plowing and planting. But um, in a year, towards the end of a year, a plague sets in and people are killed. They're dying. So they have to move again. They go to the land of the Strophades, it's the land of the harpies, and it's there on page 74. Um, look at this quickly, it's important. They're eating the... <laughs> this, is, this is like the um, Chimerian chapter in the Odyssey when Odysseus' men came to the island of Helios, remember? They were told not to eat the cattle. Now, Aeneas has no such warning but the men see the, these cattle and they um, kill them so they can eat um, and they have to move because the harpies come they take shelter and try to eat again and the harpies come again um, on page 74 these harpy feminine vicious-looking figures soar around threatening them and once they're frightened they fly off but one of them the leader Selenu, stops, I'm in the middle of page 74, only Solano perched on a high crag, a ghastly witch brought words out croaking down. So war is all you given recompense for slaughter of bulls and bullocks? Can it be heirs of Laomedon? You'll arm for war to drive the innocent harpies from their country. They ate the food uh, presumably without asking or without um, doing proper proper homage. Italy is the land you look for well, the winds will blow, you'll find your Italy, you'll be allowed to enter port, but you may never wall your destined city till deathly famine, for the blood shed here, has made you grind your tables with your teeth. It's one of the most important prophecies in the Aeneid. And it's interesting that <laughs> remember, the one that did the, the one act that did away with Homer's I mean with uh, Odysseus' companions was eating not controlling their appetites. Here um, the harpy, Seleno is threatening them because of the way they've abused this and saying, um, you will never wall your destined city till death deathly famine for the bloodshed here has made you grind your tables with your teeth. So they won't know where they are, they won't know that they're home until they're eating their tables. That's Silenus' prophecy. Okay. Um, he will go on, um, one of the most important cities, go to page 76. They come to Uthrotrum, this is really important, middle of the page. There they meet Andromaca. Remember Andromaca was Hector's wife? <laughs> she was the one we saw in book six in the Iliad. That Remember Hector went to try to get Paris and there was that touching exchange between them. The middle of page 76. And as it happened at that hour, she and Dromache in a grove outside the city beside a brook, thin replica is Simoy. Simoy was one of the rivers in Troy. Now hold on to that. Beside a brook, the replica of Simoy was making from a ceremonial meal her offerings and libations to the dust, calling the great shade at a tomb called Hector's she's appealing to her husband who's dead. It's a memorial and she sees Aeneas walking up at the bottom page 70 says, where's my Hector? And she wept and filled the grove with veiling because it's, she looks at Aeneas as if he's a shade because you know she expected him to be dead. Um, Andromega tells Aeneas the story that she was married to Pyrrhus, Achilles' son, Pyrrhus gave her up for um, a Greek woman, and gave her to um, Helenus, um, and they came here, and founded this city. And on page 77, by that death, part of the kingdom passed to Helenus. He called the plain Caonian, the realm itself Caonia, from the Trojan Caon, and built a Pergamum, a citadel called Ilium's on this ridge. Pergamum was the was what the was the name of the um, citadel in Troy. Go on over in the middle of page 78. She poured out her question all in tears, her long and vain lament, when the great soldier and son of Priam Helenus approached from the townside with many in his train in his great joy at knowing us for kindred. He led us then to the city gate by turns, weeping and speaking. Walking along with him, I saw before me (coughs) Troy in miniature, a slender copy of our massive tower, a dry brooklet named Xanthus remember that was the river in which Achilles had that fight with the river a dry brooklet brooklet named Xanthus and I pressed my body against the scan gate now um, Hellenus will give Aeneas another prophecy on page seventy nine and he says at the bottom of the page when in, when in anxiety by a stream apart beneath shore oaks you find a giant sow snow white reclining there a suckling litter of thirty snow white young that place will be your haven after toil sight of your town and he gives him instructions on how to complete his voice the way uh, Circe did to Odysseus that he'll have to avoid um, um, skill and charybdis and some other things um so he's received a number of um, prophecies and it's here that he bids farewell and he says this on page 83. Be happy friends, your fortune is achieved while one fate beckons us and then another. Here is your quiet rest, no seed to plow. If one day I shall enter Tiber stream and Tiber fields and see the walls my people have in store for them then of these kindred cities, neighboring nations and Epirus and Hesperia, both looking back to Darnanians as founder, both to one sad history, we shall make a single Troy in spirit. May this task await our heirs. So Aeneas says to Helenus, Be glad where you are, be settled. One day, if I do settle, come to Tiber, this place that's, that's destined for me to found. Um, we will both look back and we will be united by a common spirit. So here's one more meaning given to the meaning of Rome. If Aeneas finds the city, he's saying to Helenus right now, farewell, if he founds it, one day they will be united so that even though there are all these other cities located in different parts of the world, they will be united by this one spirit, whatever it is Rome brings into being. Now go back for a moment just because I want to um what do we learn about um, Barthrodom as a city? Um, what's wrong with it? remember when he f- when he first arrives, he sees a grove outside um, beside a brook, a thin replica of Simoy, the same brook outside of Troy. And when he meets Helenus and Helenus walks him around the city, he says, I saw before me Troy miniature a slender copy of our massive tower' a dry brooklet named Xanthus, and I press my body against the sky and gate. It's like a duplica of of Troy. What's wrong? Anything wrong, or is this just okay? It's another one of these cities. I think Aeneas is learning something. All these cities are dying. There's something wrong with them all. There's something wrong with every one of them. And... All it does is make clear to us that whatever this Rome is going to be, (laughs) whatever this Rome is going to be, it's going to ask of him things that are not asked of other men. He's going to have to keep making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He can't hold up these trophies to say, look, all of this I have. His whole life is a life of renunciations. If Rome is going to be the city that the gods are calling into being—it—it's it, got to separate itself from these other cities. What's wrong with um, Uthodum? Page we on. I think what what Virgil's showing us here is that when you've lost everything, and, and, and I don't even think, I mean, if, if you've lost everything, whatever you're going to do in life as you move forward, you've got to carry the past forward. He's made that clear. But you can't duplicate the past. And let me try to generalize on this. If you're a child, let's say you really admire your parents if there's some way in which what you do as you move forward is that you only duplicate what your parents did then you're gonna die because you're somebody new so what he's showing is you just cannot duplicate the past you can't pick the past up in because if you do it's gonna die there's something living in human beings that has to move forward in in what I'm calling this apophatic space, this in-between space. It's not there, it's not here. You know, when when we settle ourselves and think this is it, and we're duplicating something. Helenus and Andromache are alive. They're Trojans, they survived the war. But it's a they've got the same Samoa. and and notice the, the, the description of the of the city and the I saw before me Troy in miniature, a slender copy of our mass, a dry brooklet named Xanthus. It's dried up. It's dying. Every one of these cities is showing some form of death. That, that This is amazing in the way it points to Christ. There's something wrong with every one of them. Um, and whatever this Rome is, it can't carry, it's got to renounce these things. And so here what we're seeing is you just can't pick up the past and duplicate it if you do it's dead um, Aeneas is going to go on to other cities and and rather I mean I, 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 I'm trusting that you've read them and if you've seen my notes they should help but what I would what, what I'd like to do now is turn to book four and as quickly as I can just quote some passages um, to put this together with Dido but let me stop. Um, any, I, I want to do this quickly, but any questions before I do? I just want to pull some things together with Dido and, and include Carthage in this list of cities. So if we start from Troy and and go out from Troy with all these cities, we'll finally get to Carthage and Dido. There'll be a long list of cities, and every one of them will throw a light on Rome and something Rome is doing that none of these cities is doing. Okay, But Um, Any questions before we look at Dido? Let me just go through some of the passages very quickly to just try to root this in the book and then I'll I'll ask my questions. On page 96, this is book 4 about line 45 or so, Dido says because she's fallen in love with Aeneas, she's so taken by this figure, this man and all that he carries within him from the past and who he is now. She says, I recognize the signs of the old flame, of old desire. Because remember when she left Tyre, her, um, her brother had killed her husband and she had vowed then, at that point, never to marry. So right now she feels herself betraying her vow. I recognize the signs of that old flame of old desire. But, oh, chaste life, before I break your laws, I pray that earth may open gate for me. She'd rather die than break her oath, but she does. Anna says to her sister, page 96, Dear to me, your sister, than daylight, will you wear your life, young as you are? She's saying, stop mourning, fall in love. I mean, she's doing what a woman friend would do with a woman. You know, I mean, what's ironic is it's, it's exactly the opposite of what she should be t- telling him, and she doesn't know. Um, Dido falls in love with Aeneas. On page 98, the two are shown together in this splendid attire. She's a regal queen. He's a noble soldier. Um, he's fitted out to be with her right now. And on 90, 98, it says, Towers half-built rose no farther, men no longer trained in arms or toiled to make harbors and battlements impregnable. Projects were broken off, laid over, and the menacing huge walls with cranes and moving, stood against the sky. This great city that Dido was building has come to a halt. She's not doing what she once did as the leader of Carthage. Um, on page 102, 10- one, the two um, are out for a walk and go to a cave, and it's there that they sexually consummate their love. Page 101. Now to the self-same cave came Dino and the captain of the Trojans. Primal earth herself and Neptunal Juno opened the ritual. Torches of lightning bla- light, lightning, blazed. High heaven became witness to their marriage, and nymphs cried out wild hymns from a mountaintop. That day was the first cause of death and first of sorrow. Dido had no further qualms as to impressions given and set abroad. She didn't care what people thought. Once she did, um, she was at least keeping up appearances. Now she doesn't any longer. She thought no longer of a secret love, but called it marriage. Thus, under that name, she hid her fault. Now, um, Aeneas is there a year, and at one point, Um, um, Mercury appears to him at bottom of 104 alighting tiptoe on the first huntments Huntments, there he found Aeneas laying foundations for new towers and homes he noted well the sword hilt the man wore adorned with yellow jasper and the cloak aglow with Tyrian dye upon his shoulders Gifts of the wealthy queen, who had inwoven inter- in gold thread in the fabric, Mercury took him to task at once. Is it for you to lay the stones for Carthage's high walls, tame husband that you are, and build their city? Um, go down, amazed and shocked at the bottom of soul by what his eyes had seen. Aeneas felt his hackles rise, his voice choke in his throat um, at the sharp admonition. He's terrified by the moment. And it's at that point he sells his men ready, make ready the ships. Now go back a second. Mercury comes to him. Notice the way Aeneas is dressed. He noted well the sword hilt the man wore, adorned with yellow jasper, and the cloak aglow with Tyrian dye upon his soldiers' shoulders. Gifts of the wealth, wealthy queen. What's your response to Aeneas as he's dressed this way? What's the difference between Aeneas here, and who he was at Troy, or who he was during the seven years of his journeys, before this affair with Dido?
2: He's
1: a kept man. Hmm?
0: He's a kept man. Can you hear Suzanne? Can you speak up, Dino? He's a
1: kept man. Meaning what? He's Dido's, Dido's
0: toy. Careful. Do you all hear? Can you hear, Doc? Yeah, there's something effeminate to him, right? It's something effeminate. It's like a man wearing jewelry. He's given himself to leisure. He's not the soldier he once was. And the building has stopped. What he's doing now is what he did was move off his calling and given himself to the building of Troy. So in, in this... or Sorry, Carthage, yeah. Um, Dido will confront him on page 96. She's really angry because she hears this rumor that he's making plans to leave, and she can't believe um, what she hears. She says on page 106, evil rumor, shameless as before, brought word. She's furious. Can our love not hold you? Can the pledge we gave not hold you? Can Dido now not, um, now sure to die in pain? Will you abandon me? She says on page 107. To whom do you abandon me? A dying woman? Her first thought is that he must be leaving her for another woman. Um, he denies all that she says. He says on page 107 um, As for myself, be sure I never shall deny all that you say. Your majesty of what you meant to me never will be the memory of a list. Um, all that she says is true what he he goes on to say is he's not doing it for himself he's doing it because the gods have called him onto something that requires that he leave do not think i meant to be deceitful and slip away I never held the torches of a bridegroom never entered into the pack their marriage marriage was never consummated never performed Um, he's going to leave Um, and he says at the very end I drank his measure when he looked at the gods, so please no more of these appeals that set us both afire. I sail for Italy, not of my own free will. Over and over and over again, what distinguishes Aeneas from all these other soldiers is that what he does is not his own will. He's doing the will of the gods. Now hold on to that because everything that's motivated most of these men that we've been looking at, power, wealth, prestige, It's what made Troy fall. Um, She goes um, to Anna and she has her keepers um, build up a pyre and she tells her sister that she's performing a magic act to keep Aeneas there when what she's actually doing is preparing for her suicide. She prepares this pyre. Anna's confused. She thinks she's, she's doing a magic ritual to keep Aeneas there when she's not. Um, And when Aeneas leaves, um, um, she says, this is on page 117, the queen caught sight of the ships. She knew the waterfront now empty. He's left. Oh, Jupiter, she said, will this man go? Will he have mocked my kingdom, stranger that he was and is? Will they not snatch up arms and follow him from every quarter of the town? Um, She's concerned that her people will follow him. Um, On page 115, um, as she thinks about his leaving, she says, Look now, what can I do? Turn once again to the old suitors, only to be laughed at, begging a marriage with the Numidians whom I disdain. She looked down on all these men before because she, she was holding herself to her vow. And now she's saying, now I'm going to have to make my myself available to these men that once I scorn. Then what? Trail the Ilian ships that follow like a slave. She wants to be a ruler. Am I to go alone, companion of the exultant sailors in their flight? Or shall I set out of the wake with Tyrians? Um, she doesn't know what to do. She's going to take her life. And here's what I want to end with before we, I mean, my last couple of questions before we end. Um, She places herself in the top of this pyre and sets um, fire to it. And this is one of the last descriptions we have. Um... Um, if by this is on page 118, if by necessity that impious wretch must find his haven and come safe to land, if so, if so, Joe's destinies require, and this his end in view must stand, yet all the same, when hard beset in war by a brave people, forced to go outside his boundaries, and torn from Iulius, let him beg assistance, let him see the unmerited deaths of those around and with him, and accepting peace on unjust terms let him not even so enjoy his kingdom or the life he longs for but fall in battle before his time and lie unburied on the sand. She curses him. She hopes everything bad for him. If he would ever ask for aid, she would never give it. um, And curses him. This I implore. This is my last cry. As my last blood flows, then oh my Tyrion, besieged with hate. His progeny And all his race to come. Make this your offering to my dust. No love, no pact must be between our people. No, but rise up from my bones, avenging spirit, harry with fire and sword, the dart and countrymen, now or hereafter, at whatever time the strength will be afforded. Coast with coast in conflict, I implore, and sea with sea, and arms with arms. May they contend in war themselves and all the children of their children. And the last image is. But nineteen, 119, remnants dear to me while God and fate allow it, take this breath and give me respite from these agonies. I lived my life out to the very end and passed the stages fortune had appointed. Now my tall shade goes to the underworld. I built a famous town, saw my great walls, avenged my husband, made my hostile brother pay. And she has all these things. A screen pierced the high chambers. Now through the shock city rumor went rioting as wails and sobs with women's outcry echoed in the palace and heaven's high air gave back the beating din as though all Carthage or old Tyre fell to storming enemies. And out of hand flames billowed on the roofs of men and gods. Her sister heard and trembling faint with terror lacerating her face beating her breast ran through the crowd to call the dying queen and she laments that um, Dido didn't tell her what was going to happen. Okay, let me stop. Um, how to put this? How, a couple of questions I've got here. They're, um, they're so important everything we're doing. How is Dido different as a woman from Creusa? Um, um, Aeneas's wife said he had to leave her, who died in, um, in Troy. And how is she different as a leader? If if she's the epitome of what Carthage is, how is she different from a leader like Aeneas if he's to be the epitome of Rome? So I'm not just talking about two people. I hope that's clear. I'm asking you to look at them as emblematic of the cities that they rule. So take both questions. How is Dido different from Creusa as a woman first? We're looking at two individuals. They're both, by the way, they're both refugees. Dido had to flee. She she was victimized. So is Aeneas. They're both carrying suffering. She comes here to found Carthage. She's gonna go on to found Rome. How is she different as a woman from Creusa? That's the first question.
2: Well, she was ruled by the passion um and at first she wasn't she uh did the honorable thing and then she fell in love and let it all you know let it all go um but then it wasn't really love because when aeneas left to do what he was supposed to do then she got very scornful and Wanted bad things for him. So, uh, what's your name,
0: Kriya? Yeah.
2: She loved her husband and and wanted to love him. And Dido was exactly the opposite.
0: Yeah. Uh, Melly, before you go, you said she was ruled by her passions. Can you name the passions? Can you specify any of them?
2: well when when she instantly fell in love, so it was kind of a lust kind of thing, and uh um she well, she fell hard for him um and then she she couldn't bring herself to face the suitors again because it was because she had already made that decision to marry to marry Aeneas. That she um, she was too humiliated. She couldn't she couldn't explain herself. It would be better to die than to go into shame. Yeah.
0: yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else?
1: Well, it was all about her. It was very selfish love.
0: Yeah. 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 Sue, did you did you have something? Were you going to say something?
1: Well, it's really I and mean, then Teresa was.
0: Sue, I can't hear you. I, is
1: for a bigger, bigger future. She she was concerned not just for herself, as you said, and she was concerned for her husband, for her son, for the future generations, for what was supposed to be. So she had, in a sense, a bigger view of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. So, around herself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? If if I were to um, if I were to identify the passions, because I mean I thought your word was a good one, Melody, but um, I would say um, hatred and spite, particularly spite. Um, she's a proud woman, really proud. Um, and I think it's really important to put these things together. What I think what we're meant to see is that Carthage would be a proud... Remember, the image, the image, the logo of Carthage is that war horse. It's a noble creature. Carthage is noble. It's a fighter warrior. It's got the temperament of a woman who's a fighter. She's proud and... Um, and, and and you know in the beginning noble as you said, but when she falls in love with Aeneas um, and and she's in a relationship in which she's you know having to deal with giving herself again, and he leaves. It's not just that he leaves. Um, what she's faced with is the pride in her own character. Um, you know the way she talks about having to be available to these suitors whom once she scorned. You know is she going to have to? Is she going to have to? humiliate herself or lower herself to be available to those men. Um, faced with all of those problems, her answer to them in her nobility is not to give herself up, it's to kill herself. And I think it's really important here. The, the, uh, this is so important. The final image we get at the close of that chapter is of, is of um, Carthage burning. That's a, proleptic, that's a proleptic image of Carthage in the Punic Wars is going to destroy it um, so what a couple really a couple of important things here and um, Dido is an image of a person who a woman in this case very self-centered very ambitious very noble who wants to create a city but in her image very proud very noble when she's faith with something that asks something of her she can't do it Aeneas is defined constantly by having to give up his will for something greater than himself. So. Again and again and again and again. So the difference between the two cities is a nobility and something more human and ordinary. The logo of Rome, remember, is a, a sow and 30 piglets. There's nothing uglier or more common than a pig. Set it against a warhorse. I mean, you've got an image of everything that Rome stands for and everything that Carthage stands for. So when we get an image of, of, the, of the pyre going up and it's, it's, it's presented as if it were an image of Carthage going up, that's a proleptic image of Carthage when it will be destroyed at the end of the Punic Wars. Okay? So Virgil is showing us the, the character, of, the motivating character behind two cities, selfish and selfless. One of the most important things that we've got to note here is this. The reason for the this is so crucial. You know, we talked about how uh, um, Virgil changes things in in the Odyssey. Odysseus is with Calypso for a year or for eight years. Circe for a year. He Aeneas is with Dido for one year. They have a sexual tryst. It's not a marriage. The ultimate consequence that language that erode curse on your children and their children's children. What Homer or Virgil is showing us is the causes of the Punic War was this sexual looseness with Aeneas. She, she throws this curse down, and we're going to see it played out, what, um, 1,200 years later? No, yeah, no, six 700 years later in the Punic Wars? If the, if the Trojan Wars are 1,200 and the Punic Wars are from 300 following, I can't remember the dates, um, it's an important remember there were three Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome. In the, I think it was in the second. history well, history's loose on this? I think it was in the second one that Hannibal actually crossed the Alps and brought forces into Italy. And Italy was at the point of being de- or Rome was at the point of being destroyed. Um, and Rome's answer finally when they did defeat Hannibal was to go back and level Carthage and the great, the great lament of the great you know, Roman leaders was Rome won't be destroyed by somebody outside itself it will be destroyed from within because we don't have what it takes because Rome was already beginning to be corrupt but clearly Virgil's treatment of, of what's happening at this moment sorry I wanted to um, um, is that the origins of the Punic Wars um is this this illicit sexual relationship that aeneas had with now through the shock city rumor went rioting and whales sobs with women's outcry echoed in the palace and heaven's high air gave back the beating din as though all carthage or old tyre fell to storming enemies and out of hand flames bellowed you know it goes on and remember um, let him see the unmerited death of those around and with him. She's cursing him. Um, in, um, even so, enjoy his kingdom or the life he longs for, but fall in battle before his time and lie unburied on the sand. This I implore. This is my last cry as my last blood flows. Then, oh, my Tyrians besiege with hate, his progeny and all his race to come. Make this your offering to my dust. No love, no pact must be between our peoples, but rise up from my bones, avenging spirit. Harry with fire and sword the Darnan countrymen, now or here, hereafter, whatever time the strength will be afforded. Coast with coast in conflict. Remember, Carthage and Rome are on those two coasts, not far. Um, coast with coast in conflict, I implore, and sea with sea and arms with arms. May they contend in war themselves and all the children of their children. One last comment, because um, I'm, I'm trying to keep myself to time, sorry. If we look at the Greek world and the Roman world, I already made this point, but I want to underscore it here. We, we, we leave a world that tends to idealize everything, even though I, I, I think Homer was the most anti-romantic poet. He doesn't romanticize things. I, I tried to underscore that in all that I said about his works. He's the, he, he's so, he knows there are no such thing as black whites there's a suffering involved in everything he's so good at seeing that but the Greek mind tended to live in an idealized world Odysseus' um, experiences at sea or contacts with archetypes Okay. Odysseus um, struggles for nine years to get home in Virgil's Aeneid we're watching a man age and we're watching an action take place in history Jupiter gives this prophecy of things that are going to come but what we're watching are things actually taking place in history in historical time so what's happening here 1200 years before Virgil wrote are the beginnings of the Punic Wars what Virgil's saying is you can't escape consequences in time actions will have consequences. So we're much more embedded in a world of history and time with Virgil than we are in Homer. And I I don't even like saying that because to say it that makes makes it... I mean, you know how much I value Homer. I mean, I I just think he's one of the most extraordinary poets. But I I, I don't want to say bad things about him because I I don't believe them. I think he's extraordinary. But when we put the two works together, the two worldviews, the Homeric and the Virgilian, we're watching a poet move into time who's who's more capable, more able, of experiencing a sense of loss of things. Because once you enter time and you get out of an ideal world, we suffer the effects of time. That's why Virgil has that name, Melancholy Virgil. We're going to start book six. I, I'll just I'm just going to touch on book five. it's It's Anchises' funeral. I'm only going to touch on it. We're going to do book six and seven when we meet next week. But before I start next week, what I want to do is just make a list of all the things that Aeneas had to give up. You can make that list for yourself. Think about the things that Aeneas had to lose. And set that against that Greek world. It's loss after loss after loss after loss after loss. And he still has to go on. He can't let the fact that he loses keep him from doing anything or he can't let the fact that he loses things be a cause of despair which is what happens to Dido so when we think about the Rome that's coming into existence this new kind of city I I hope everybody's aware how much this is pointing towards Christ in an amazing amazing way and this is from a pagan that something is coming into being that isn't like anything Virgil's seen. He knows that man is not enough. He knows that the mythological gods were not enough. He knows that philosophy is not enough. There will be this great thing, but something more. And that's the Rome that is the center of was the center of the world and center of Christendom. Let me stop. Any any questions before we stop for the night?
1: Not really a question. Sure. I was thinking about the the ability to overcome the appetites with the divine. And the, that's the bit you asked at one point what was the difference in the leaders. And Dido was not able to do that. But Aeneas was in the end. I mean I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But but he was at least in this instance.
0: But he sorry, Sue was, years, was he what?
1: Overcoming the appetites with the divine, with virtue, with what the gods ordained with your calling. But but the difference between appetites, lust, um, living in a nice world, building things, dressing up well, all yeah, of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. And that does preclude Christ or does come
0: lead toward Christ yeah yeah good we're reading a great book I mean it's just amazing how you know we, you know I've been stressing this since we started with Homer that how these pagan poets had these intimations of something I remember the the return of the king the return of the king the the acceptance of death the family um, and here in Virgil we're we're watching this extraordinary action um, every event of which is pointing towards this extraordinary city this new vision of a city and a child if you read the if you if you look at the notes I sent you the fourth ecologue you if you just they're short it's a short it's a short piece I it's, it's hard not to be amazed because you, you hear him talking about this child who will bring a peace um, I, I believe there's no there's no firm evidence in this but it's hard it's hard to read those without thinking that he had access to the old testament you know what he does with the wanderings lines up with the wanderings in the desert and and his prophecy about the child lines up with Isaiah so closely it's just hard to believe that the because think about the mediterranean world and the exchange of literature in rome and you know it and and because all the old testament writings were around for centuries you know before Virgil so it's just hard to watch this and not feel that he had read Isaiah and um, you know um, the um, exodus and some other works of the Old Testament anyway we're reading an extraordinary work I'm, I'm glad you're reading it and, and it looks like you're enjoying it I'm really glad to see that so bless you all um, you all stay safe um, Um, Keep each other, let's keep each other in our prayers, okay, please. Um, Okay, you guys have a good week, and um, I'll talk with Tim, but at this point, let's just plan to meet online next Tuesday, and we'll go from there. Okay, you guys have a good week. Bye.
2: Bye. Thank you.